Very, very brief recap. Work is good. We need work. Work is something which we find fulfilling. It's stimulating when it's great. There's nothing better than doing a good job well. Uh, and it would be great if the work that we could do was all the stuff that we enjoy doing all of the time. But stop and pause and think. Work is also something which is, is there for our society to flourish. And yet at the same time, work is bad because we've corrupted it because we've made it something about us, because we've made it something which is not about the glory of God, we've made it something about the glory of humanity. It's become selfish, it's become selfish, it's become self-indulgent, and it has found a different purpose than that which God originally intended. We now no longer see it as being the center of the flourishing of humanity to the glory of God. We see it as a way for us to uh, succeed personally. So work is good, work is bad, but I want to ask you a question in the light of that, what motivates you with regards to work? What motivates you every day? No matter what work you do, whether you work full-time, whether you work part-time, whether you work unpaid, whatever you do, you will work in some way. You know, the dishes don't get washed, the garden doesn't get organized. Uh, the clothes don't get washed. You don't get shopping in by, I was going to say, by just tapping your fingers. Actually, you can do that now, can't you? Um, but you know what I mean. There are demands in work. There have been two stories which have really struck me this week. If you've been following anything about the kind of uh, investment stuff that's going on at the moment, there's an organization called WeWork. It's this... Uh, uh, web-based and at the same time uh, place-based idea of creating these amazing incredible workspaces. The guy who runs it is married to the brother of Gwyneth Paltrow I believe and uh, they, it, it's almost spiritual when he talks about the, the idea of moving the idea of me to the idea of we, and it all sounds incredibly beautiful and wonderful, but the problem that he currently faces is the international stock exchanges are beginning to doubt that his investment idea is anything better than just a way for him to make billions of dollars, because the we that he describes to everybody is actually not about we, it is actually about me. It is about creating just another unicorn. There is another story which expresses the crushing mess that work has become. I find it incredible that this story has been going on for months and yet has been hidden because of our current and understandable journey through the dramas of Brexit. There are two guys who are on trial in Germany for tax fraud. It is the Cum-Ex scandal. There is an estimation that by twisting the tax system, they have defrauded across Europe tax environments, companies, oh, sorry, organized countries rather. They have dis uh, defrauded countries to the sum of 60 billion euros. That is incredible, isn't it? What would 60 billion euros do in terms of education, 
in terms of hospitals, in terms of the building of infrastructure for society. Do you see when we take the purpose of work and we twist it away from we and we make it about me, we are actually able to invest huge sums of money, huge sums of money, the brightest and the best brains to create incredibly complex mathematical models which defraud the tasks system and rob from the we for the sake of the me and it is done under the umbrella of financial services what a mess we were we are in so i'll ask the question again in the face of all of that what motivates you what motivates us to actually work what motivates you to work when you know that you are involved in an underfunded, over-politicized care environment. Where the care that you want to give to the individuals who you truly care for is caught up in the quagmire of political games and underfunding. What motivates you when you are struggling in an underfunded school and you desperately want the well-being of the children who you are working for the sake of, but you know that you are fighting a battle? What motivates you for work when you know you are getting up at four o'clock tomorrow morning or whatever it might be to arrive at a dehumanizing warehouse? where you are nothing more than a mechanism in the production of fast-moving deliveries. They are the realities of our work experience. And unless the gospel, the message of Jesus, has got something to say to those kind of environments, unless it's got that, which I believe it has, we are missing a vital ingredient of the purpose of the gospel, which is a redemptive journey to human flourishing. A journey which takes the possibilities of humanity lifting our eyes a little bit higher from the mess that we are in and seeing that there is something bigger. It's taking us somewhere better. There is hope. That's our journey today. So the first thing, and using this, this text, the first thing that I want to recognize and ask the question is this. Who do we work for? I'm going to do a surprising thing. Well, you've probably experienced it often enough with me. I'm going to turn it around the other way. We're going to start at the end of the text and come back. So let's have a look at verse 22. The gospel lays out a foundation for work. Look at the first verse of uh, first word of verse 22. Slaves. <clears throat> there is great debate about what the actual status of slaves were in the Roman Empire, which is which were the first readers of this letter which Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. What we do know probably with confidence is that it was a spectrum. There were some slaves which are really downtrodden. There were other slaves which were relatively almost employees and yet still owned. 
And yet Paul is writing to people in a church about their work environment. He's saying, I know who you are. I know the demands that you are faced with. And I am talking to you in the context of your work environment. I am recognizing your employment status. And he says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. In everything. And do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? Slaves. We've got over that, haven't we? Have we? Or do we have individuals... Maybe some of us here this afternoon who recognize that, that in a way we are caught up in, in a sense of slavery. I'm not talking about modern day slavery. We all stand in one place and say, that is an outrage, which tells us that we still haven't got over the problem of slavery. But if you speak to most people who are employed in some sort of gig economy, whether it's Uber drivers whether it's Deliveroo drivers, they will probably reflect that they feel like slaves. That there is a crushing weight upon them that they feel as if they can't get out of. Yeah, it's great for students to earn a little bit of extra money during their studies. It's great to feel really cool like a courier in New York. But the reality is that feeding your family, paying your mortgage, there are many people in our environment who are trapped in a sense of slavery. And Paul says to us in this experience, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Isn't that absolutely mind-blowingly incredible? Obey your earthly masters. Not only when the eye is on you, you probably got seen signs over the years in work, quick, look busy, here comes the boss. That's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, don't behave like that. Don't live in a way, don't approach your work life with a mindset which says, I'll look busy when he or she is around, but I'll join in with everybody else when he or she is not around. That is not the way to live. Obey your master, earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eyes are on you and to curry favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence to the Lord. Do you see that twist that Paul makes? He doesn't say with sincerity of heart and reverence towards your master although he's implying that you have an attitude towards your master in that way, he's saying, I want you to take it on a whole other level, and I want your Christian faith, your faith in this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One, I want your faith in Him to be such that when you do your day-to-day work, you do that work with reverence towards the God who you worship. That my, my life is filled and shaped and transformed in such a way 
that my day-to-day work, I do it like I'm doing it for the Lord. That is, that is incredible, isn't it? That is incredible. And yet at the same time, I think we can be fairly confident that the deep religious faith of black African-American slaves and post-Civil War slaves right the way through to the 1950s had their hope in just that. That when they are experiencing the pressure and the absolute injustice, they worked for something bigger, which was the glory of the God who they worshipped. There is something bigger in what I do. There is something with hope because I'm not doing it for you really, in a way. Although I am. But I'm really living out this work day to day knowing that everything that I do I'm doing with reverence to the God who I love. Why did they live like that? Why can we live like that? Because we realize that that attitude actually strips oppression of its very power. It strips oppression of its power. Oppression is that thing which is demands that we do something for the oppressor. The oppressor wins all the time. And actually this subversive message which Paul brings, which ultimately with the abolishment of slavery saw the, saw the recognition of all humanity on an equal footing. He said this, when you work with an attitude that you are working for the Lord who you worship, the power of the oppressor is stripped. Because now you realize that you have a loving master. A master who you can serve in spite, in spite of the oppression that you experience. That's incredible, isn't it? That's the slaves. And then there is one next statement which amazingly, during the construction of in much later than when the Bible was written, so that we can understand how to w- understand where we all are in... Go back a step, Paul. For those of you who aren't r- uh, very familiar with the history of the Bible, the Bible was not written originally with chapters and verses. They were a much, much later edition. Chapters and verses are a mechanism for help, to help us all get to the same place when we want to read it together. That's all they're there for. For some bizarre reason, they decided to break chapter 3 at the end of verse 20, uh, whatever it is. Um, Yeah, verse 25. And put the next sentence in chapter 4. But the next sentence in chapter 4 is dynamite for the Roman Empire. Dynamite. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Imagine, 
Imagine if that attitude captured our economic world, if it captured our political world, if it captured our social world, that the elite and the powerful recognized that there was a master above them, which they had a responsibility to deliver care, fairness, justice, rightness. There was a period where there was, it wasn't perfect, but there was a period of time where we experienced just a little flavor of that. Where something of the goodness of the gospel was shaping commercial activity. And people like the Lever Brothers and the Bourneville community, uh, they, built, they built places for their staff to work. They wanted their staff to work in good places. Now, let's not get, in, get into a huge debate about why they did it. They could have done it because they recognized that they work better. La, 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 la. But there was a time once where we did seek the well-being of the society in which we lived because masters, the elite, had an attitude which was, I have a greater master. And the greater master is not the shareholders or the secretary of state. The master is the God who demands the justice that I have received and the, the mercy and the kindness that I have received shapes the way I provide for those who come into my responsibility. Do you see how dramatic the message of the gospel is? It changed the world. <laughs> we lose sight of that. Over, over hundreds of years, the message of Jesus changed the world. Oh, that it would change the world again. Oh, that once again we would see the dramatic power of the goodness of the message of the gospel. That's who we work for. So here's another question. What do we work for? If we now know who, do we, who we work for, next one is, what do we work for? You know, all of our, any, if you've done any of this kind of theory on motivation in the workplace and all of that kind of stuff, some of you will have done, you will undoubtedly have hit, either in the workplace or in social studies or whatever it might be, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it, it, it recognizes that as human beings, there are base things that we really need. Uh, and then it kind of goes up and up and up the, 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 the pyramid until finally we, we are recognized and we find personal fulfillment. We find personal fulfillment. Do you know that the gospel has at its heart personal fulfillment and satisfaction? Working like this has that at its heart. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. You should do this. You should work like this since you know that you will receive an inheritance for the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Isn't that incredible? Down throughout the past 2,000 years and until 
Jesus returns again, the message of the Gospel says the God who we worship can promise an inheritance to every single person who believes. The God who we worship has that kind of resource. It is unbounded. It is not limited. We haven't got a God who's looking at the looking at the equivalent of his heavenly pension fund and thinking, I'm running a bit short. I'd better turn up because I'm running short of inheritance. The God who we worship is glorified because he can continue to pour out and pour out and pour out and never be depleted. Isn't that incredible? That's the glory of God. That is the glory of God that He can give and give and give and give and give and never be any the less. Imagine if you could do that. Imagine if you could say to your family, to your children, to your neighbors, to your loved ones, whoever it might be, I can just give to you so that you are, you are well, so that you find satisfaction, so that you will be recognized, so that I, I can see what you've done. I can see that you've committed. I can see the things that you've committed to. And I'll pour out blessing because of what you've done. But we can't. But the God who we worship can. What Paul is saying is this, your hidden work is not unseen. Your hidden work is not unseen. When you're marking school books late at night for children who are disruptive, when your eyes are stinging because you are tired and you wonder whether it is worthwhile, keep going. Because you are working for the glory of the God who you worship and you will be rewarded. It's not seen. It is, is what Paul says. When you are weeping because you are so extraordinarily tired, because the ward that you work on is so understaffed that you cannot possibly give the care that you truly want to give, and you feel as though you are wasting your time, and you go home dissatisfied, do not give up. Because the work that you do is recognized and will go. And will be ultimately recognized with an inheritance. J.R. Tolkien, Matt used this, uh, this picture. Well, it's actually a story about a picture a few months ago. It is a brilliant picture. J.R. Tolkien, writer of the Lord of the Rings series. He, was so, he, was that the, he took him years and years to write Lord of the Rings. He didn't know whether he was going to get all the way through it. And he knew that it was such an important work. And, you know, if you study it, you see all the pictures that it paints. It's, it's an amazing work. He wrote a little story just in between the writing of Lord of the Rings to describe his, his commitment and his fears. It's called Leaf by Niggle. 
It's a story about a man called Nigel who was a painter who wanted to paint beautiful pictures and yet was all, what, paint one beautiful picture. Just one beautiful picture in my life. Just one that's perfect. One that's satisfying. And he's called to paint all sorts of other things. And he just comes back to this one painting of a tree with, where every leaf was perfect. And he kept coming back to it and wanting to complete it and wanting to find the satisfaction of that work completed. And he kept on coming back and he kept on failing and he felt as if he was never going to achieve this life's mission, this work. And this work that was in his mind was just going to be lost and nobody would see it and nobody would recognize it. And then he died. And Tolkien tells the story of him going into his eternal home. And as he walked into that eternal place, he sees his tree perfected. What is Tolkien saying? He's saying what you do now which you feel is not completed now is recognized as completed when you seek the glory of the God who you love in the work that you do. It's as though the inheritance that you receive is, is as though you have completed the work that you can't possibly complete. It's God saying, I recognize that you live in a broken world where you cannot fulfill and I will make up the difference. Because I can fulfill where you cannot fulfill. And that is what we work for. It's what we work for. It's that hope that there is something more than this tortuous battle which defeats us day by day. And Niggles didn't understand that until he saw it unleashed before him and his tree was perfected. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here. You will receive your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So that's who we work for. It's what we work for. What is the foundation of this work? Let's go right back to the very beginning of our reading. The foundation for this work, the foundation for this hope, can only exist when we have that true, eternal dimension of who we are in Jesus Christ. If you're looking on at this idea of the Christian faith and you're considering, can I place my trust in this Jesus? Is there this kind of real hope, this bigger thing? Paul is saying the hope that we have in Jesus is so dramatic, so life-changing, that it is as though we are new people. Look at what he says. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's saying, don't become a, a kind of heavenly Joe where you don't, you don't even engage in the work stuff because at the end of the chapter, he's talking about real life. But he's saying, have your sights 
on something bigger. Have your sights where Christ is, this risen Jesus. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, if, G- if Jesus really did rise from the dead, where He is now is incredibly significant to us. That's what Paul is saying. And if you are in Christ, it is as though you are risen already. You are raised from the dead, he's saying. You are raised and you are in Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That little section is the foundation for the whole of this series. We've kind of been mentioning it all the way along. There is is a foundation for hope in work, and the foundation for hope in work is this. It is as though you are alive in a completely different way. You have died and come to life. Jesus said to a man called Nicodemus, you need to be born again. The old you needs to die. And the new you needs to come to life. And the new you is not all about you. It is all about Him. And you are secure in Him. And when you are in Him, where He is is significant for you. Because one day, It's going to change in a moment and you will be with Him. I want to close by just reading a few verses. And I want you to consider these verses in the context of your work environment, whatever that is. Because I truly believe if we embrace this approach to work, we can truly know what it is to be liberated from being slaves to the machine. And it's verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion in the workplace, kindness in the workplace, humility in the workplace, gentleness and patience in the workplace, and bear with each other and forgive one another in the workplace, if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you in the workplace. And over all these virtues, put on love in the workplace, which binds them all together in perfect unity.